This is Contra Radio from Contra.Scott. We plough and sow, we are so low that we delve in the dirty clay Till we bless the plain with a golden grain and the veil with a fragrant hay Our place we know, we are so low down at the landlord's feet We're not too low, the bread to grow, too low, the bread to eat. Hello listeners, and welcome back to this episode of A People's History of Scotland. You're listening to me, Sarah Bennett, who is in conversation with the author of the book that we're reading through together, A People's History of Scotland, and that's Chris Banbury, our author. And well, we're now on to chapter five of the book, and we're getting on to the Enlightenment and Capitalism. So just to kickstart the questions, uh, I want to start off with someone that you quote in this chapter, Walter Scott. And in his first novel, Waverley, he says, there is no European nation which, within the course of half a century or a little more, has undergone so complete a change as this kingdom of Scotland. So Scott was talking about rapid and major changes, both in agriculture and industry, which would go on to transform Scotland. Can you talk a bit about this and maybe explain a little bit about what you think makes Scotland different in this respect from, say, England? In England, capitalism had developed really over centuries. I mean, the beginning of enclosure, the taking away of common land from the common people and the implementation of capitalist agricultural arrangements on the land took place over centuries. In Scotland, it took place in a very concentrated period in the lowlands really from the very beginning of the 18th century. In the highlands, it would take place from about the 1780s to the 1850s, 1860s, but much more concentrated periods in time. And while it's correct to say in the 1730s, 1740s, there are signs of improvement in agriculture and some signs of the development of the linen trade, Scotland remains a feudal society. It remains a society dominated by an aristocracy, who control not just their lands, but have control over their own courts, implement their law in terms of their tenants and so on. And it's a militarized society, not just in the highlands, but in large areas of the lowlands, particularly in the northeast of Scotland. This all comes to a change, which we discussed at Culloden in 1746, with the defeat of the final Jacobite uprising, the determination of the British state, backed up by a majority of lowland Scots, to ensure this would never happen again, which meant, of course, the massacre at Culloden of the defeated troops and repression, but it also meant the sweeping away of feudalism in Scotland. Landlords no longer had their own courts. They couldn't demand military service. And that really gave a huge impetus for the development of capitalism. So while there have been a few beginnings of the process, It's really in the period after Culloden, in a relatively short period, half a century more, that Scotland begins to complete the agricultural revolution with some decisive innovations. By completing the agricultural revolution in lowland Scotland, it means you've got food for increasing urbanization. People can actually move to the cities and survive because agriculture can now rise to the challenge. Secondly, a growth in trade, and thirdly, the beginning of growth in industry around corn. And Walter Scott, is living through this. He's very aware of what has changed, that Scotland has gone from being a peripheral country in Europe to being cutting edge. Alongside England, there are no other countries. Holland is a capitalist country, but it's based on finance and commerce, not industry. Scotland, by the 1800s, 
is with England, absolutely cutting edge in terms of this. And Scott is very well aware, as I say, of this transformation. And I think of something else as well. In Scotland, a whole number of reformers and enlightenment thinkers are very conscious of the need to help kickstart Scotland into this modern age. And they're writing about this. Adam Smith, obviously, Hume, but also other people, agriculture improvers, very determined to do this. And they themselves are also determined to use the power of the British state to try and develop that industry. So they're prepared to take state money, they're prepared to take state benefits. They want to use the universities, which you do to an extent to do this as well. As opposed to England, there is a conscious program of improvement written down by people like Adam Smith and so on. Yeah, we'll come back and talk about Smith and other Enlightenment thinkers in a moment. First, though, let's talk a bit about the transformation of Scotland. In the chapter, you really capture the upheaval that's going on. In particular, I was really interested in your discussion of how capitalism and the development of industry shaped population flows. So could you talk about that and, and the scale of change that we're talking about? Well, as I say, you know, it's roughly in the 1740s, Scotland remained a rural society. And a rural society where landowners developed on their tenant farmers, cottage in lowland Scotland and, and to the extent in the highlands. But I'm concentrating lowland Scotland. What happens is really in the second half of the 18th century is those cottages, tenant farmers are swept away. They're cleared. They're forced out. And there is a move towards capitalist agriculture where it's like factory farming with a relatively small number of landless laborers who are employees. So the numbers on the land in the lowlands are rapidly diminished. And while the effect of that is not as apparent as in the Highland currencies later, when people are aware of the savagery of the thing almost from the beginning, the development of industry in the cities, particularly Glasgow in the west of Scotland, can absorb this surplus population, like to put crudely, surplus in the sense of the employers, agriculturists, and so on. These people are no longer required, so they can move there. So there's not the sort of documentation of what happens with the low incoherencies as there is about the hammer incoherencies, but it's dramatic. The cotton farmers is the sort of society Robert Burns is writing about, describing in Ayrshire, relatively, I wouldn't over-egg it, but relatively affluent, relatively comfortable by the standards of the day. Burns is very well aware that these people are being eradicated, uh, and that comes out in his poems. So there is... Two things, a deterioration for those remaining on the land as landless laborers, a deterioration of living standards and wages, and the eradication of the cotters, the sort of society, as I say, Robert Burns is describing, and by and large moving to Glasgow, or in the case of Burns moving to Dumfries to find employment as an excise man. So we're seeing the sort of development of a proletariat for the first time, aren't we? You're beginning to see a, a development of a rural proletariat. It's quite small in number now because you don't need that many. They're employed for short terms. They move around. Factory farms don't need to invest money in accommodation particularly for them. So they're relatively small in number, but they are a proletariat. You're quite right about that. And would you say industrialization led to improvements in the standard of living? It did lead to improvements in the standard of living in the sense that, as I say, particularly for the growing urban population, they can now access food on a scale which never previously. So famine ceases to be a problem. Disease, chronic disease, cholera, typhus, etc., becomes a dreadful problem in the growing industrial cities and towns, which are still essentially futile in terms of their housing stock and don't have proper sewage, clean water. So 
already moving to the city is an improvement for many in the sense it's more free, but dreadful social problems. We should also say there's a rural proletariat developing around handloom weaving. And initially, this is actually quite beneficial. But of course, mechanization begins to come in and mechanization means de-skilling. But we're also seeing a reduction in wages and a reduction in the skilled economy. So some of the prosperity at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution around domestic industry is simply eradicated. And by the 1840s, we're seeing factory production in places like Glasgow, cotton being produced in factory mills using steam power increasingly. And that means you're moving towards an industrial proletariat. This takes some time to happen. But as I say, an industrial proletariat living in dreadful housing conditions, suffering lower wages than England. And this is quite important as well, because English entrepreneurs are encouraged to come to Scotland to invest because costs of production are lower. Firstly, there's more access to running water. Water is very important in this period in time. Later, there's coal fields as well, and iron ore. But also, lower wages mean more profits. So English entrepreneurs, great names like Sir Richard Arkwright, come to Scotland to invest because they can make more money crudely. Let's go back to Walter Scott again, because he wrote about the movement of people from the countryside to the new towns. And he said, nature intended that population should be diffused over the soil in proportion to its extent. This is a comment on the emergence of a working class, but is also one of the central figures that contributed to constructing a modern Scottish identity. So, Chris, can you tell us a bit about Walter Scott? He's a very good historian. His four major Scottish novels are well worth reading to get a sense of the change which really happens, beginning with the Glorious Revolution and coming through to Culloden and its aftermath. He's a very good historian, and he's a very romantic Scot as well. He bursts into tears at the thought of the Scottish currency being extinguished. But he's a Tory. And let's put this into perspective, where we're now seeing a Conservative Party which is in complete crisis as we speak. But in the period roughly from the 1780s to the 1830s, the British government was dominated by the Conservative Party on a counter-revolutionary basis, a basis of opposition to the French Revolution, to Jacobism, and to the bastard child of that, Napoleon. And of course, to manifestations of support for that in Britain, which were many, including in Scotland. So Scott combines a kind of romantic Scottishism and a very good sense of history with a cute sense of being a conservative. And therefore, he's appalled by the development of industrialization. He's appalled by what it's doing to the ecology of Scotland as well, incidentally. You know, he's an agrarianist, if you like. But he's also appalled by the rise of a working class. They scare him. They literally scare him. And so therefore, he's egging on the British government and the Scottish authorities to send in the troops to suppress any protests, any strikes. And that's the general attitude, I think, of the emerging new Scottish ruling class. Same industrialists who bemoan the fact that Glasgow hasn't got an MP and a fitted up electoral system, and bemoan the fact that they are excluded from running Glasgow. But of course, as soon as there's any industrial unrest, as soon as there's any protest, those same employers in Glasgow are on to the authorities to use the British army to suppress them, which they do repeatedly and bloodily. So what are some of the most famous incidents and protests and riots that took place during this particular period? Well, the popular discontent begins, and again, it's important to say what we're seeing here is a society at war all the way through from the second half of the 18th century to 1815 and Britain's final victory over Napoleon at Waterloo, where Britain emerges as the hegemon of the globe. 
So it's a society at war, and that puts strains on society. So the forest evidence is there's over food shortages because huge amounts of food have to be diverted to help keep the British armies in Flanders, later on in Portugal and Spain, and America fighting against the American Revolution have to get them fed. So the first manifestation, as often is the case with sort of proto-industrial societies, is food riots, often led by women, you know, who have been queuing to try and get bread. They can't get it and will start rioting, exactly the same way as the French and Russian revolutions actually begin. The second then turn comes to, uh, to protest in support of the French Revolution. We're going to discuss this later, so I won't spend a lot of time over it. Solidarity with the French Revolution and a turn against the whole lack of any democracy in Britain, which is most acute in Scotland, which is managed for the government of Pitt the Younger by a man called Henry Dundas, later Viscount Melville. Notoriously corrupt, but manages Scotland, which is actually less democratic, and that's saying something in England. That, therefore, becomes a big issue, and the British government throw everything it can, backed up by the Scottish authorities, to suppress that. And then, after the polio wars, and again, we'll talk about this more, the beginnings for the first time of what we recognise a, a modern proletariat taking strike action, which will culminate in a defeat of the power weavers in Glasgow in the 1830s, a very important strike, a defeat which is not dissimilar for those who remember to the 1984-1985 miners' strike on its impact, demoralisation, is quite a turning point. So we're seeing an evolution of popular protest, you know, from the bread riot, the first cry of the oppressed, through to beginnings of what we recognise as a modern industrial dispute, albeit one which is where the army is sent in with orders to open fire. And Scotland is really at the cutting edge of the development of a radical movement in Britain. And it's important to say it's part of an emerging working class in Britain. So people sing Robert Burns' song, Scots Were Hey, but they sing that in England as well. And in Scotland, people reference the fight against the, the Anglo-Saxon York and the conquest of 1066. Both groups across the world are drawing on somewhat romanticized versions of society to inspire them in this fight against the old oligarchy and for some form of economic change and for a living wage, decent conditions and so on. Let's talk about the British state. To what extent is Scotland integrated into the British Empire and its economy at this point? And you've talked about the attractiveness of Scotland to English entrepreneurs because of the lower costs, but how did it impact on the development of Scottish society? After Culloden, over a very short period of time, the British, as I say, are permanently at war with France, the main rival. France representing the uh, absolutism, the old regime at this stage. Britain is desperately short of uh, manpower. And William Pitt the Elder, there's two Pitts, I know it's confusing, grasps that Scotland has the reserves of manpower. Large sections of the population are underemployed, and of course in the Highlands, there is a surplus population in many ways. So the Scots become a very important part of the British forces fighting in France, then America, and France again. And the Scottish aristocracy sees a chance Already, the British Army was the first institution of the British state to be integrated. It was only one, really, prior to the Act of Union. So Scots have already entered into the British Army with some success. This is quite important because two things are going on. There's a process of almost permanent war in which Scotland is very important against France, which at the beginning represented a, a possibility, of, if it was victorious, of turning the clock back towards a, more, a feudal society. Then later on, it becomes revolutionary France, and indeed, as I say, the bastard child Napoleonic France, 
which is a different threat. And they hate that as well. And lastly, and we'll talk about this in a minute, I suspect, there's also the question of empire. Because these wars aren't just being fought as a matter of self-defense. These are about Britain stripping away France's colonial possessions, gaining control of Canada, gaining control of the parts of uh, India and so on. The Napoleonic Wars really created what becomes the British Empire we're familiar with, particularly in India. So by the end of that, there is an obvious Scottish identity, which is celebrated. The charge of the Scots Greys at Waterloo, pictures and stories of battles and so on. And therefore, it was possible to have a very proud Scottish identity, as with Sir Walter Scott, but also be British and very proud of the fact that Britain is carving out this empire, is defeating the French and so on. So there is a new entity being created, a British state, which Scotland could buy into. So let's move on to Scotland and the empire. This is a topic that has quite rightly attracted a lot of attention in recent years. You mentioned that the Scottish elite aren't as wealthy as their English counterparts, by and large, and therefore the empire looked particularly attractive to them, and they flocked to India and the Caribbean. What was the relationship between Scotland, empire and slavery? Well, as you say, the Scottish ruling class are poorer than their English counterparts in the, the late 18th century. Prior to Culloden, they have been largely excluded from the empire. The Act of Union was not opened up by opening up the doors of empire. Basically, they didn't want these interlopers in, so Scots were largely excluded. This changes with the process I've just tried to describe, where Scots are flocking to London to seize opportunities. And someone like Henry Dundas, who's in charge of India for Britain, opens lots of doors for fellow Scots. Scots flood into the East India Company and are soon administrating large portions of India. And there's kickbacks here all the way through. And also something is changing in the attitude to India itself. Really, at the beginning of the British presence in India, they were aware that India was a more developed society. There was a degree of respect. English upper-class people married Indians, had Indian families. That wasn't seen as taboo. This will change. Now, with the colonization, if there has to be a justification for it, and racism comes in, these Scottish Nawabs, like their English counterparts, look down on the natives. They're corrupt. They're venal. They're out to make money, and they make money. And while I wouldn't say the income, and I'll come back to the Caribbean in a minute, the income that's coming in from India isn't overall important in the Industrial Revolution. It produces quite a steady flow of capital coming in, which is quite important. On the Caribbean, the great myth was the Glasgow tobacco merchants made the money through trading in tobacco. They weren't part of the slave trade. You know, this is just rubbish. And Robert Burns, for instance, attacks uh, the wife of one of the slave traders, Oswald, one of his best poems, to a louse is well worth reading. The... North Atlantic economy was based on a triangular trade where British strips went to Africa to buy slaves, took them to the Caribbean, sold them to the Caribbean, and went to the American states to buy cotton and other goods, tobacco, and bring them back to Scotland. It also involved the exchange of Scottish industrial goods or British industrial goods for that tobacco. In the Caribbean and in America, Scots were involved in the slave trade. And as I think you'll be aware, you've come across many people of Afro-Caribbean background who have Scottish surnames. Now, that's not because their great-great-great-great-grandma had a love affair with some passing Scot. It's because that was the name of the overseer, or that was the name of the manager of the plantation and the owner of the plantation in the Caribbean. So we can't write about Scotland's relationship with the Caribbean without talking about what we did there. And that remains a legacy. You know, we also are, are responsible for the devastation 
of countries like Jamaica and the problems such as the Cuba is in the past. I think we have to come to terms with that. And there has to be something else said about this as well. Scottish Enlightenment thinkers were progressive in many ways. I think of David Hume. I mean, he was important as establishing materialism as part of a philosophical basis, which others could develop. But he also developed, it has to be said, a supposedly scientific basis of racism to justify what was happening in India and justify what was happening in the Caribbean. So while you could talk about the progressive nature of the Enlightenment, there is also that dark shadow, which is always there, with Hume in particular, over the question of racism. You mentioned Hume there, so let's talk about the Enlightenment and uh, other Enlightenment thinkers. What were the other major ideas that they were bringing to the world at this time that makes them stand out? I think it's important to say that they were in contact with their counterparts in France, with the Euro, Voltaire and so on. So these were the beginnings of a group of people discussing modern ideas. I'm very well aware of what the problems were in society. They also wanted economic change. So Hume, for instance, is, I say there's this dark side of it. He also writes a history of Britain, which is very important in establishing a kind of Whiggish narrative of how Britain was created and formed. Adam Smith is describing the beginnings of industrial capitalism, the beginnings, still very much based on, you know, very crude cotton industry, mining and so on, and on commerce and on agrarian relations. The interesting thing about Smith is he's aware as well. I mean, while he recently becomes a hero of Margaret Thatcher, he's also aware of exploitation and doesn't just say this is a wonderful thing. He actually wants a fair deal. He argues it's in the interests of capitalism, and he's eventually put it wrong, it's to provide a fair deal for workers. So he's a complex Smith. He's not the kind of free market model we're usually presented with in the sort of Thatcherite neoliberal propaganda. So these people create a centre in Edinburgh in Glasgow to an extent, where the cutting edge of some of the most advanced ideas in the world, but also the universities, Glasgow, Edinburgh, are also applying some of those ideas. So they're not cut off from industry. So entrepreneurs, inventors are there in the classrooms, consciously trying to develop steam power, which is the most obvious one. So it's an intermingling of people who are philosophers, but also practical people inventing things and so on. So It's a really interesting period, I think, but for one, Scotland is, I say, at the cutting edge of where capitalism is emerging, both philosophically and technically. So we're talking about the Scottish Enlightenment here, but are they also thought of as belonging to the British Enlightenment? I mean, you have the construction of Scottish and British national identities in this period. So how would they have navigated that? You know, what shaped these things? The Edinburgh Review will become a key publication for the Whigs, very key publication. They don't see a contradiction between uh, having a Scottish identity, but also being British, for the reason I tried to talk about earlier. They can marry the two things. The British identity, in some ways, because of what is happening in the outside, the, the wars and so on, are important. And I should also add that, of course, because the British state is a war, also that feeds back into industrialization. Now, most of the benefits, for instance, for the Royal Navy, most of the industrialization which occurs around it is mainly concentrated in southern England, ports with Plymouth, Chatham, and so on. But it feeds into Scotland. So up until Waterloo, the economy, agricultural economy is booming. Basically, the Royal Navy and the army will take as much cattle as they can drive south to sell in England because they need to salt it, pickle it, whatever, and then use it to feed the troops or the sailors. When the car and iron works is created, It takes the most modern technology 
A factory is creating outside Falkirk, employing that modern technology, and it provides what's called the carronade, a crucial short-range gun for Nelson's Navy, which is crucial to some of those big naval victories we talk about. And suddenly you've got, in the middle of Lowland Scotland, it's what you see in China, it's what you see in much of the, the, the global south. No, you know, in an agricultural society, outside Falkirk, this huge factory is set up, which is a wonder of the world. You know, and shocks people when it's a Walter Scott. But people are coming from across Europe or America to come and see this. They're sort of just look at it because it's just so incredible. I mean, the French are trying to get spies in to discover what's going on inside there. The current Ironworks is a sign of how rapid industrialization is. And also of a degree of reliance on the British state. That's often understated when we're talking about industrialization in Britain. The state has always been important to industrialization. It is now. If you're talking about China, Vietnam, anywhere in the world. And it was in Britain and Scotland at the time. But that's something that's why it's been written out of history. It's true the dominant model in Scotland were small private family firms, often in the textile industry. But state intervention created something like the Caroline Ironworks, you know, with dramatic effect. And the metallurgical industry was really transformed by the demands of the wars to provide the weapons to win those wars. Are you enjoying this episode of A People's History of Scotland? Make sure to hit the subscribe button and leave a review. You can find us at Contour Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This way, you'll get every episode as soon as it's released, as well as all the other shows on Contour Radio Podcast Network. And head over to Contour.Scot, where you can read up-to-date analysis of news, culture, and events in Scotland and across the globe. Who were the ruling class in Scotland at this time? You talked about the Scottish MPs at Westminster being managed. So what was that relationship like? A relatively small number of Scottish MPs, far fewer proportion of voters than there are in England. So a tiny percentage of people are like those MPs, basically the people who run the royal boroughs and landowners. And it's run by an oligarchy. Up until the 1740s, Scotland is run for the Whigs by the Duke of Argyll, by aristocrats. Henry Zendas is a lesser aristocrat, but he's part of the Tories. Great friend and drinking buddy of William Pitt the Younger and William Wilberforce, actually, an interesting group of people. He uses his control of money coming into Scotland and control of offices to basically say to people who are elected to Westminster, generally no longer are the aristocrats themselves, but the people who run the estates for the aristocrats or do the books for the aristocrats or are the lawyers. But basically, Dundas will have them for a drink and it'll make it very clear that if they want to get on at Westminster, they want a position, or their friends and family want positions, basically you play by my rules and you'll get what you want for your family, your friends, and so on. And the vast majority of those MPs go along with it. So Dundas can then deliver a good number of votes to William Pitt the Younger and the Tory administration. And one of the jobs he's doing is returning the Navy, and eventually he's done for corruption because the money going into the Navy, he's taking his own cut. Now, this is just normal at the time. Really, up until the end of this period of Tory dominance in the 1830s, his son continues to run Scotland, not quite as well. So that's how the system works. And it's based on a, you know, a tiny electorate as well, who can be managed as well. You know, if you're the local uh, aristocrat, you can basically make it clear. And voting is not a secret, so you know how people are voting. You can make it clear that, you know, if you don't vote the right way, this is good. You're not going to, your son's not going to get this or whatever it is. 
a lot of favors. So you better vote the right way. And people generally do vote the right way, not to get into trouble. So that's how the system is run up until the 1830s. It's not until the extension of the franchise in 1832, the middle classes and the industrial class get control of a city like Glasgow. An end to Tory dominance and a beginning of Whig dominance for much the second half of the 19th century. Moving on to the royal family, in 1822, King George IV had a state visit uh, orchestrated by uh, Walter Scott, actually. So what's that relationship between Scotland and the British crown? We should remember the royal family is not that popular. It's not really that popular in Britain as a whole until the second half of Queen Victoria's reign, when Disraeli gets her to come out of uh, withdrawal after the death of her husband. And they really build up the monarchy as a symbol of empire. So this is quite important. So... All the things we associate now, the state funerals, the weddings, the births, even the processional route in London, the stuff we saw in Edinburgh, all of that is more or less created in the second half of the 18th century, a rebranding of the monarchy as empire. The monarchy was not popular. So a lot of the riots during the periods, the first period in the 1790s would be against things like any official celebration of King George III's birthday. And there were serious riots in places like Edinburgh, Perth, Dumfries, and so on. What I think is happening here is in 1822, you're right, Walter Scott orchestrates this visit. First visit since Charles II had been running around trying to regain his throne. He organizes this visit, and it's quite important in creating an identity in the following way. You have to tie this in with the military as well. The clan chiefs, the remaining clan chiefs, who are already forcing the tenants off the land and sending them ships to America, are summoned down to Edinburgh. And they are told they're going to wear a Highland dress. Now, Highland dress is an invention of the 18th century as well. The kilt is an 18th century creation, created by an English industrialist. His employers were creating charcoal for uh, making metal. And they found the, the plaid, the big blanket, they were going in the way of physical labor. And they created the kilt as we know it. Tarlands existed as a checked pattern for millennia. But this time around, they decided to create individual clan tartans, which never existed. And they went to see cloth manufacturers and they bought this thing off the shelf. And they dressed up in these fairly strange costumes. And Prince George, the Prince Regent, wore one as well, much to the ridicule of many. But what it did do was establish this idea that the Highlands, which had, up until then, up until Culloden, had been this rebellious place. This place which many law and Scots had seen in racist terms, suddenly this was being projected as the Scottish identity. And of course, the Highland regiments and all Scottish regiments were already using this as well. So this was a jump which was quite easy to make. Prince Regent's visit is quite an important episode in that. So this is Scott consciously, as is happening across Europe with the creation of nations in the first half of the 18th century. Much of it is about inventing a nationality, inventing symbols of it. You know, like Marianne in France is a symbol of the French Republic, bringing back the Gauls, and I can never remember the, the chief who surrenders to uh, Julius Caesar, uh, all that some mythology of it all, bringing that back to try and say this is a, an ancient Scottish nation, an ancient French nation. The conscious effort, a book, Ossian, by a man called James McPherson, claiming to be uh, the writings of an unknown, previously unknown Gaelic poet, translated by McPherson. Most of it forged, some of it original, becomes one of the big books of the late 18th century because it's feeding into sort of the wild savage of the Highlander, you know, this noble warrior. 
it becomes a very popular thing among European romantic nationalists. So Scotland, and then, then it becomes a place of pilgrimage. So you have all sorts of people flocking to Scotland to find things out. You know, Mendelssohn goes to the Hebrides to see Fingal's Cave and writes a fantastic piece of music to celebrate. Yeah, I actually took your book around with me in the National Portrait Gallery here in Edinburgh, and it's fascinating to see how history is depicted. Because you get to the part on the 18th century, and then suddenly there's tartan. There's suddenly there's a costume change, the way that people are presenting themselves. And I thought that was really interesting. So let's just go back to the working class again, though, because I'm just wondering, you've touched on the influence of the French Revolution, The Rights of Man by Tom Paine, how that book was devoured in secret meetings and read to each other by workers. But what about the writings of the Scottish Enlightenment thinkers? I mean, how did that impact on ordinary people, if indeed it did? I don't think it impacted that much on them, to be perfectly honest, but the French Revolution did. Thomas Paine, The Rights of Man, was a bestseller. Over-egged sometimes, but one of the achievements of the Kirk by providing a degree of education meant that Scotland was a relatively literate society. So newspapers, revolutionary newspapers, pro-Jacobin newspapers got a wide circulation. So it's international, and it's epitomized by some like Robert Burns. I know Chris Watway's writing a book on Burns. Burns had supported, as did many Enlightenment thinkers, actually, Smith and Hume had supported American independence. Burns went further and would support Jacobinism. And it's interesting that Scots Wahey is written as actually a revolutionary song about the French Revolution. He himself was subject to harassment and had to write the man's a man for all that Scots way anonymously because he was in danger. But Burns is a radical. Chris, is there anything else you want to mention before we wrap up on this particular period of history? Anything that hasn't been mentioned yet? I think just to say, you, you're talking about the beginning of this, and we've talked about Walter Scott, and it will continue into the kale yards of the 19th century. You're talking about this creation of romanticized Scotland, but then it becomes a slightly bastardized version of what you call the kale yard, which focuses on our mythical, rural, small-town Scotland, where everything seems to be conservative, everyone seems to be happy, everyone seems to be uh, quite small-minded and bigoted, actually, and uh, very Calvinist. But of course, the reality of what was taking place, well, that, that's on creation of a romanticized Scotland that you mentioned, you know, the National Portrait Gallery, you can see all the, the military, the thin red line of Balaclava, the charge of the Scots, all the rest. Hastley said the reality for Scots, increasingly as industrialization kicks in, is brutal. Appalling housing conditions, child deaths, very short life, and outbreaks of cholera and typhus all the way through. And Scotland will become notorious for this into the 20th century. Glasgow, in particular, is some of the worst slums anywhere in the Western world. You're competing here. And so it's worth saying that this sort of strange situation where this romantic Scotland is created, which is completely at odds with what the reality is. I mean, for those who remember, it's, you know, it's a bit like the Sunday Post still creating that romanticized view of, of Scottish society. And the Bruins and Uruwari living in a Dundee where class struggle was just sort of doesn't exist. The reality of Dundee was horrendous, as in any industrialising society, you know, horrendous. So that's what I'd end on. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A People's History of Scotland. This series is only possible because of support from listeners like you. If you'd like to help us make more shows like this, please head over to contour.scot and make a donation, or subscribe to our Patreon channel. The music is by Ewan McLennan, from the album Stories Still Untold. Special thanks to him for allowing us to use this song. 
God bless our boys, the papers scream, praise them the churchmen cry. But oh, when the war is done and we're all home, who cares if we live or die? We'll oh, we'll oh, till that happy day, we're called to a heaven on high. Oh, and the freedom we never had in our lives will be there on the day we die. But have you seen, no oh, what suffering hell on earth For the promise of a heaven above Oh, I not join the fight Till that one day we might See a heaven down here below See a heaven down here below 